The first reading is Isaiah chapter 42, uh, starting at verse 1, um, page on uh, page 758 of the Church Bibles. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, which is on page 973 in these Bibles. We're in 1026. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a, Lord, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Do you need to have more confidence that Jesus really is God's King? Do you know that you need to see Jesus' glory more clearly? Or do you know you need to change to be more like Jesus, but you're just not sure how to do it? Or do you know you need to listen to Jesus and listen less to others? If just one of those things is true for you, then you've come to the right place. You need to come up the mountain with Jesus where God reveals Jesus' glory. Last week we saw that there had been more than enough signs from Jesus to know who he was. And so the people are looking at the signs and they say, he's one of the prophets. The disciples know that, but when Jesus says to them, who do you say I am? Peter speaks for them. You are the Christ. But now, God gives more than just signs, more than just things that Jesus does that point to who he is. God now reveals the glory of Jesus. Have a look at verse 1. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Contrary to everything you've seen about Jesus, he did not glow as he walked around. He did not wear a dinner plate above his head. He looked ordinary. He had nothing to attract us to him. But now the disciples see him as they've never seen him before. And by that I don't mean that he went to the barber and when he said, cut it short, the barber didn't understand what he meant. No, this is bigger. Jesus now, his face shines like the sun. His clothes become as white as the light. He looks glorious. And not just that he looks glorious, he's with glorious company, isn't he? Verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Here are the two great prophets of the Old Testament, both of whom saw the glory on the mountain. Through Moses, God gave the law. Through Elijah, he called them back to the law. And Jesus' glorious appearance and his glorious company, it is all so glorious that Peter is simply overcome. And he blurts out, verse 4, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It is good to be there. This is extraordinary, and he doesn't want it to end. And so he thinks the shelter might help it to last. And I think he just wants to do something. But it's a bit silly, isn't it? More than that, it's not just silly, it's plain wrong, I think. One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. As if Jesus is one amongst many here. As if Jesus has just been added to the prophet's hall of fame. And now finally he's equal with Moses and Elijah. But Jesus here is not basking in the glory of the prophets, is he? He's not looking to get a selfie with Moses or Elijah to sort of get some of their glory. No, they're pointing to him. And it's as if God hears Peter's silly and wrong words and he can't bear for them to come to keep going. Do you notice that, verse 5? Peter doesn't speak for long, but while he was still speaking, God butts in. A bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's harder, don't you think, to imagine a warmer commendation. This is my son, whom I love. I've got three sons whom I love, but I don't think I've ever introduced one of them like that. This is my son, whom I love. And he doesn't love this son 
despite what he was like as a child or despite what he's like now. It's not that sort of love. With whom I am well pleased. God looks at his son, sees himself in his son, and is so delighted with the glory in his son that he is well pleased. It's a warm commendation, but more than that, it's a declaration, isn't it? This is not just my prophet, Peter. This is not just my greatest prophet. This is my son. And Psalm 2, this is a quote from, I put some of the quotes tonight on the backside of the, uh, of the outline. Psalm 2, this is my son, the promised king who will rule the nations. With him I'm well pleased, which is not just I really like him, but it's Isaiah 42, my servant who will suffer for the people, my promised king and the servant of the Lord. And you, Peter, were talking about one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah? You've got to be kidding. God speaks. It's a warm commendation and a big declaration. And the disciples hear it. And you notice how they respond, verse 6? They fell face down to the ground, terrified. And verse 8 is striking, I think. When they looked up, having heard the voice, they saw no one except Jesus. Literally, it says they saw Jesus himself alone. Moses and Elijah were there to point to him. They've done their job. God's spoken. That's bigger than Moses and Elijah. And now there is just Jesus. He is not one amongst many, is he? He is not the best yet out of the prophets. He is the one. He outshines them all. Do you see here? God reveals the glory of Jesus. And we need to see this, don't we? It's one of the things to have signs that point to Jesus. There are more than enough signs. We saw that. But what if there are different interpretations of the signs? The Jewish leaders and the disciples see it different way. Everyone's got an opinion, haven't they? Why should I pick your opinion about Jesus? But this changes everything. Relativism, everyone's just got their own opinion and you can uh, they're all equally valid. Until God turns up and voices his opinion, which is the opinion. That's what Peter wants us to know in 2 Peter 1. Do you see that quote there on the back of the outline? We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you this. This was real. We were eyewitnesses. And what did we eyewitness? The voice. We heard it. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. If you see this glory of Jesus, you can be confident he really is God's promised king. It is not just somebody's opinion, it's what God says. And if you see this glory of Jesus, you won't be impressed by other people's glory, will you? 
Have you all your life been longing for glory and you're still dreaming perhaps of winning Wimbledon or winning at the Commonwealth Games? Or have you reached that midlife crisis and realised that the world is never going to realise your glory, it's just hidden inside? We all long for glory, don't we? But there is no one glorious like Jesus. He shines like the sun here. He is the glorious one and we need to see that and gaze upon it and not be impressed by others. God himself is well pleased with Jesus. In fact, there's one other thing here that I sort of skipped over. I don't know whether you notice that. You should always notice when a preacher just skips over something. Maybe it's too hard for him. Have a look back at verse 2. It's not just that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Do you see what it says in verse 2? There he was transfigured before them. Before this week, I figured that transfigured was just what the rest of the verse explained. He changed his appearance. He didn't normally glow, and now he glowed. Outward appearance. But I discovered, I read in the book, it pointed that out, that the word transfigured doesn't mean changing your outward appearance. No, it's changing all of you. In particular, changing you from the inside and it may show on the outside. You know the verse in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is the word transfigured. Is that a change of appearance so that you start glowing? No, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and it will then show in your behavior but will have no impact probably on what you look like. Transfigured here is not just that Jesus starts to glow, do you see? It's that he is changed completely. A new person. What is it here that Jesus becomes? Do the disciples here get a glimpse of what Jesus' glory was like before he came to earth when he was in heaven? No. He didn't have a body then. They wouldn't have seen anything. What is it that they see here? What, what Jesus is it that they get a glimpse of here for a short period of time on the mountain? Well, if you look back at the verse just before this incident, back 16, verse 28, Jesus says, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We saw that Jesus was saying here that after his death and resurrection, he would be coming into his kingdom. He would come to God and be given glory and honor and power. That's about to happen. And here they are given a glimpse of it, I believe. What Jesus is it that they see here? It is the resurrected Jesus. It is the glorified Jesus. It is the Jesus that we will see one day when we are resurrected. Do you see? They, have, they are given a glimpse of Jesus from the future. And he is glorious. And do you know that as we see his glory, 
as we see what he is like in his new resurrection body, as we focus upon his glory, the Bible says that we too will be transfigured. I learnt this this week as well. Do you see the last verse there on the outline? 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we who with unveiled faces all reflect or contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. There's that word again. Transfigured into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. What happens to Jesus here? That he is transfigured into his coming glory. So as we contemplate, focus on, desire Jesus' glory, so we too are transfigured. We are changed little by little every day into his glory. We talk at our church, don't we, about seeing lives transformed through Jesus. In ordinary words, we all just want to become more like Jesus, little by little each day. But how do you do it? Have you got to obey some certain rules? Is there some latest Christian book that will tell you the secret? No, it's quite simple and it's here. You've got to see Jesus better. Just like when a teenager has a teen pop idol and they so desire them, so idolise them that their hair starts to grow like them, that they put on makeup like them, that they play the guitar like them. What they idolise, the glory they see, they become like that. So it is with Christians. Whatever you desire, whatever your glory is, you become like it. And for Christians, that is Jesus. Do you want to become more like Jesus? Then you need to see Jesus' glory more clearly and dwell upon it. Do you see how much there is here in this passage? Jesus reveals Jesus' glory. And if you see that and hear his voice, it'll fill you with confidence that he really is God's king. It's not just an opinion. When you see his glory, you'll be filled with praise and more than that. You will be transfigured to be like him. But it's worth asking the question, why does God reveal Jesus' glory like this now? Why at this point in the story and not at some other point? Who is it for this revealing of Jesus' glory? Is it that Jesus really needed some affirmation at this point since he's now talking about suffering and being killed? Does he need to hear God's voice to affirm him so that he presses on? No, I don't think so. Have a look again at verse 1 and see whom is being emphasised. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Clearly the focus is on Jesus, yes, but it's who he takes with him. It's very deliberate and Matthew wants us to see who sees this. He led them. It's by themselves. It's before them. And when God speaks, do you notice who he's talking to? Is he talking to Jesus or to the disciples? 
We don't have to be very good at grammar to work it out. He does not say, you are my son, does he? No, he says, this is my son. Jesus knows he's not talking to him. He's talking to the disciples. For this whole thing is not for Jesus to affirm him. It's for the disciples because the disciples need to see this. They need to hear this. Just think about it for a moment. They've seen the signs that Jesus has been given and Peter recognises that Jesus is the Christ. Well done, Peter. But just before that, remember last week, they had failed to see and understand about the bread. And when Jesus had told them that he must suffer, be killed and be raised, what did Peter do? He rebuked the Christ. He refused to listen to him. And you see it here in this very story. He gets a glimpse of Jesus in his resurrection glory. And verse 4, he talks as if Jesus is just one of the prophets. And these are the disciples on whom Jesus is promising to build his church. Not very promising, really. They need some educating don't they? And so Jesus takes them to disciple school up the mountain, not for his benefit, but for theirs. In fact, this whole section of Matthew's gospel, 17 and 18, is all about educating the disciples. In particular, I think, you could call it educating Peter. Why do they need to see Jesus' glory? Why do they need to hear the voice from God. Well, it's not hard to see. It's that other bit that I skipped. Do you remember? Verse 5. This is my son, says God, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, stop rebuking my son. Peter, stop talking nonsense. Would you just listen, God is saying. Let Jesus be the Christ and let him tell you what must happen. What is it that the disciples need to listen to Jesus about? It's that he must suffer. That was the thing they couldn't accept, wasn't it? And as they come down the mountain, that's the topic. That's what they talk about. And, good news, the students begin to get it, I think. As they were coming down the mountain, verse 9... Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. There it is again, Jesus' death. But the disciples, instead of rebuking Jesus this time, they ask a question because they don't get it and asking a question is a good way of listening, isn't it? Why then, they say, do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? It's a strange question, isn't it? Elijah's clearly on their mind. They've just seen him. But why do they say, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? How's that a response to what he's just said? Well, it's about what Elijah is coming to do in Malachi 4. He's coming to call the people back to God to restore all things. How then, they are saying, will God's king suffer if Elijah comes first and restores all things? All things will be fixed up. People will be listening to God. They'll accept God's king. 
Well, that's exactly what Jesus answers, that question, isn't it? Verse 11. To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Yes, Elijah comes and restores all things. He came to prepare the way for me. But look what happened to him. He was rejected and killed. In the same way, the Son of Man will suffer. And the disciples begin to get it, I think. Verse 13, Jesus has been obtuse, but they know who he's talking about. They understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. It's as if God is saying, this is my son. Listen to him. He said he must suffer, and the disciples are starting to get it. Now, you and I don't struggle with the fact that God's king must suffer. Ever since you first heard about Jesus, you've known that he was God's king and that he must suffer. In fact, you know that he did. It's not a topic of controversy for us, is it? But do you remember the other things at unexpected Easter that God said would happen? He would suffer and be killed. He would be raised. He'd be made king and he would return as judge we agree about that one don't we we're sure that he must suffer and be killed but we hear all sorts of things about the rest many people many voices will tell you that he didn't really rise from the dead many people many voices will tell you that he's just a person of history that he's not a king now that you have to obey many people many voices will tell you that he is not coming back to judge. Don't worry about it. And we need to decide, don't we, which people, which voices are we going to listen to? God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Who are you going to listen to about those issues? And the bigger challenge, I think, was the other thing that Jesus said, wasn't it? 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Many people, many voices will tell you that to be a Christian isn't supposed to be hard. We're surprised when it is hard, so we must think that ourselves. But will we listen to the many people and the many voices? Or will we listen to God's Son who told us that's exactly what would happen? And of course, it's not just about listening to Jesus in terms of what he said to the disciples back in chapter 16. Who are we going to listen to about life generally? About what matters in life? About what decisions you make? about you and whether you matter or not. For there are many people and many voices that will tell you all manner of things and get you confused and get you not even valuing yourself. 
But God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Will we do that? Do you need confidence that Jesus really is God's son? It's right here in this passage. It's God's opinion. And his opinion is right. Do you need to see Jesus' glory more clearly, that he is more glorious even than you see him in the Gospels, the Jesus of the resurrection? It's right here on the mountain. Do you need to know how to grow more like Jesus? It's not a special technique or obeying rules. It's seeing Jesus, contemplating him. It's here on the mountain. And you need to know who to listen to about Jesus and about life. It's here on this mountain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that it was so clear who Jesus was through the things that he did and said. But on this mountain, for this short period, you revealed his glory so clearly and powerfully, the glory of the Jesus to come. Father, we pray that you'd help us to hear your voice and be confident of who Jesus is. We pray that you'd help us to see Jesus' glory and to dwell upon it and so be changed, transfigured ourselves. And Father, we pray that we would listen to your Son, believe what he says about himself, and believe and trust and obey what he says about life and what he says about us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.